Lord, as we come to you, we don't have to give much thought to realize that we have not made it to the city of God yet. God, the turmoil in the Middle East, turmoil in the Ukraine, the passing away of good friends, suffering in the world. God, we just want to pause and do the only thing that we can do, and that's pray to you that you would show up in a mighty way, that your kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven. God, that you would be with those who mourn, God, those who weep, those who suffer, that you would draw up close to them and be a light to them in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of tragedy, that your Holy Spirit would come near. God, as your church, that's our only hope. As your people, that's our only confidence is that we have a great high priest who always lives to intercede for us. So Father, even as your word is preached, would you intercede for the pastor? As your word is preached, may you intercede for your people and may the word of God find good soil in their hearts so that we would produce a harvest for your glory. In your honor, God, we do pray that you would bless our children, that God, as they come to the table and see the table, as they hear God's word read, as they see your people worship, that God, that you would set their hearts ablaze by your Holy Spirit, that you would bring them to yourself and make them yours. And there would never be a day that they do not know what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord. Lord, come and meet with us in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue in the book of Jonah today, and we'll be looking at Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Would you rise as we hear God's word read? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city. And going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. 
Today we'll start the second half of the book of Jonah in chapter 3. And the first half of the book portrays Jonah as sort of this younger brother. If you remember the younger brother in the prodigal son, the rebellious running from the father of heavenly lights, full of folly and disobedience. So that's sort of the first half as we look at Jonah that sort of pictures who he is. He's sort of this younger brother fleeing from God in disobedience and folly. But in the second half of the book, it's going to picture Jonah as a self-righteous, hard-hearted, unmerciful older brother who has enjoyed God's favor and who has richly and undeservingly received the steadfast love of the Lord for years. And yet he refuses to extend that love to his own brother. And yet he refuses to extend that mercy to his own tribe. He refuses to extend that graciousness to his enemies. Sometimes that can be said of the church, can it? Right? We're very much like the younger brother at times in our disobedience. And then when we receive mercy, we're very hard-hearted to those whom are closest to us. Jonah is such a good reminder that one's doctrine, that one's beliefs may be rock solid. You might know the catechisms. You might have a theology of God that could make the pastor look like a little eager. You may be spot on in all that you know about the Bible. And yet this never translates into a life of mercy. It never translates into grace and generosity and humility towards others. It begs the question, church, doesn't it? You who have received mercy, are you merciful? We who have received God's pardon and forgiveness, are we forgiving? Jonah's an easy target, isn't he? Easy target. He's a bad prophet. <laughs> it's easy to see that splinter, right? In your brother's eye. And miss the log in your own. You see, Jonah may be a book about a hard-hearted prophet and a generous and patient God, but it's more than a book. It's a mirror. It's a mirror that we as God's church should look in, should gaze into with an honest eye and a humble heart, acknowledging and confessing, yes, even repenting. That we too have enjoyed the riches of God's love. That His mercies have been made new to us every morning. And yet we often fail to pour that generosity and that love out on our spouses, onto our children and our family, our co workers and our friends. 
And certainly we struggle to do that with our enemies. Jonah beckons God's people. It beckons us to be like the four lepers in 2 Kings 7. Remember that story? Israel is at war. Their enemies have surrounded them. And the city is starving to death. The Syrians have clamped down on them. To the point, these lepers that are sitting outside the city gates, they're like, man, instead of starving to death, let's go over to the Syrians' camp. And if they kill us, man, so be it. We're leopards. We're going to die anyway. We're starving. And they get there, and God has routed the Syrians, and there is no Syrian army, but there's just loads and loads of food. And they begin to eat, and they begin to feast. And at some point in that, they look at one another, and they're like, how can we enjoy this banquet? How can we enjoy this feast and and not have already carried it back to our city, the good news that God's mercy has came, that the buffet of God has came, So they go back into the city and they share with the whole city. See, Jonah reminds us as the church that we we are the four lepers. That's how we should be responding to the lost world. Right? It's to remind us of the story of the good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan, the hated Samaritan. He's the one that extends mercy to his enemies. It reminds us that we should be more like the tax collector and not like the Pharisee, right? Beating our chest. God, I am the greatest sinner in the building. It reminds us that we are the ones who owed the 10,000 debts. And yet we will not forgive the penny owed to us. You see, in our proclamation of the gospel, sometimes we forget that we still need the remedy that we so boldly proclaim. That we proclaim a mercy that we still need. That we hold up a holiness to the world that we haven't attained yet. The preacher, nor the prophet, nor the prostitute. And so we're reminded that it's through the mercies of Christ that we're welcome to God's table. It's through the steadfast love of the Lord that we get to participate in this community called the church. Isn't God generous? And yet, despite all these flaws, right? Despite all the failures of God's church and all the failures of his representatives throughout history, his ambassadors, prophets, priests, kings, apostles, God still uses us to communicate the good news to others. That God still uses us to proclaim God's grace to the world and uses that to inspire repentance in the wicked. 
uses that to turn from his wrath and show mercy. By way of reminder, as we look at verse 3, 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I want you to remember who Jonah is. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah's name means dove. That's what his name means. It means dove. Where have you seen the dove before, right? The Holy Spirit coming down upon Christ at his baptism. Noah sending out the dove. Jonah's name means dove. And it says, who is also the son of faithfulness and truth. That's what his father's name means. So Jonah, sort of humorous, is this pure one who is faithful. There's a humor to that, but there's two very important reminders, right? One is there is only one who is pure, and there is only one who is faithful, and that is Christ. But it's also a reminder to us as Christ's church that though we are seen, right, as pure and faithful, though we are seen as God's children in Christ, right, it's true, but we know it's not true right? We're just like Jonah. God sees us as pure and faithful and true in Christ. But we know it's not true, right? We, we doubt every day. <laughs> we have these unforgiving attitudes and spirits to one another. Right? And God's word has to visit us over and over again. Not just twice, like it does Jonah, but God's word has to visit me every day as God finishes the work that he started in us. Just like the blind man that Christ touched in Mark 8, we need a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth touch of God's grace in our lives, don't we? For the rest of our lives. And then we need to be reminded that that comes to us because of Christ. It doesn't come to us because we're obedient. <laughs> it comes to us because Christ is obedient. You see, Jonah, he, he wasn't a good prophet. He was not a good representative of God. He was not a good son. Neither was Israel. Israel was not a good representation of God either. In church, I hate to tell you, but neither is the church. The church is not a good bride. But man, we have a generous husband. We have a loving and compassionate husband. See, Christ has secured our place at the table. He has engrafted us into his family tree. And he has pledged to love us 
And he has pledged that one day we will be, we are, and one day we will be the pure and faithful ones that he calls us to be. You see, church, God, God the Father doesn't just want us to change directions in life. But he wants our posture to change. He wants our demeanor to change. He wants the dispositions of our heart to change. This only happens when we not only know what Christ has done for us in our heads, because we all know that. We could share that. But it's when the gravity it's when the weight of that lands on our hearts that the world says, who are those people? Right? Who are those people that put their lives and their family at danger in order to serve and love others? Verse 3 and 4 says... We'll start in two. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey. I just want to pause here and talk about the city a little bit. We live in a city, right? City of Mobile. And the reason I want to say a little something about this is because a young lady that I know who, who used to be here at church with us, she, she, um, she sort of sees Mobile. She was, she was from the north, so she sort of sees Mobile as this dark place. And I get it, right? In 1980, there was a lynching in Mobile. Do you guys know that? 1980. So, so I understand what she's saying, but I want to speak a little bit to the city because I want us to have a right view of the city almost like she sort of views Mobile as Nineveh, and rightly so. It probably is a lot like Nineveh. See, in the Bible, there's a lot of different cities spoken of, about 280 total cities in the Scriptures. The earliest of those is the city of Enoch. Remember Cain? Killed his brother Abel. God says, I'm going to give you a mark, Cain, and no one's going to touch you, and Cain doesn't really trust in the Lord. He goes out and builds him a city, right? He's got to protect his own. So he builds this city and he names it after his firstborn son, Enoch. And then there's several cities in Genesis 10 that are founded by Nimrod. Babel is one of those. And then we have the cities of the Canaanites and you have the description of the city of Sodom in Genesis 19. You guys know how that went. But if you were to look at all these references and you'd sort of study on all these cities in the Bible, it would become really apparent very quickly that some of the greatest evils, some of the greatest atrocities in history, some of the saddest events take place in the city, right? Just in the Bible, the attempted sexual assault of celestial beings that happens in a city in the Scriptures. These guys are going to come in and basically rape these angels. I mean, think about that. There's another one where a guy, his wife is raped, 
He cuts her up into pieces and sends her out to the other tribes. I mean, it's just atrocious. And then Bethlehem, right? You remember that? What Herod does in Bethlehem, right? After he can't, after the wise men don't come back, he goes to that city and he kills all the two and three-year-olds. Can you imagine? And so I'm with you. The scriptures, when it paints pictures of the city, it's not necessarily very good pictures. It's not very positive pictures. It's a mixed bag, right? But I want you to hear this. Cities are shaped by people. And people are shaped by cities. You hear that? Cities are shaped by people, and people are shaped by cities. It's individual people can do great good in the world, right? We've seen that happen. And yet individuals can do great harm in the world, too. We've seen that happen. And the same is true with cities made up of multiplying of people in a particular location. It can do great good, and yet it can do great evils. That's true of every city in the world. Not just Mobile, that's true of every city in the world. But the point is this, there's only two kinds of cities in the world. There's the city of God, and there's the city of man. The city of God hadn't come yet. So that means all other cities in the world are the city of man. All of them. Mankind cannot build the city of God. Seems sort of hopeless, doesn't it? But, listen at Revelations 22, 1 through 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Right? It's taking you back to the garden. It's taking you back to the way things were before the fall. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Do you hear that? The nations, not just Israel, but all the Jews and all the Gentiles. No longer will there be anything accursed. That day hasn't come yet, church, but it will come. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light and will reign forever and ever and ever. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that city? Church, the only hope we have of seeing a glimpse in a season of the city of God in our world is tied directly to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have of Mobile, Alabama ever showing glimpses of the city of God is for God's word to go forth through God's people with power and with the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. And you're only going to get a glimpse, okay? It's only going to be a season until Jesus comes again. So church, in our city we must hold Christ high. And we must go and proclaim his word. In 
and we must go and be busy in word and in deed in our city if we want to see the city of God, just a glimpse here in Mobile. So Mobile is no worse of a city than any other city in the world. But Mobile does need Jesus. Mobile does need to hear God's word go forth. Mobile does need to see God's ambassadors. That's you and that's me. Serving in word and deed in our city. And verse 2 tells Jonah, God says, hey, go and call out against it the message that I tell you. So we already have the message, right? And we got a much better message than Jonah had, right? Christ has come, paid for your sins, paid for your wickedness, covered your unrighteousness. Turn to the living God and be saved. Verse 4 says that Jonah began to go into the city and go in a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Go and call out, Jonah. Go and proclaim the good news. Trusting God has prepared those to whom we go. Right? You sort of look at our city and you're like, well, man, what? look, God is the one who does the work. All we have to do is to be faithful to proclaim his word and to live out this gospel that we say we believe. Verse 3, 5 through 8, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And it goes on to say how the king also did the same thing but God wants it to be very, very clear. It doesn't start with the king, right? Of course, if the king makes a decree, everybody's going to follow. It starts out with the least of those. And Jonah begins to go into the city and he proclaims and people begin to repent in sackcloth. Some may ask, is this, is this, is this mass conversion? Like, did the whole city actually become regenerate and come to Christ? a good question. We know that Christ has done this in the New Testament, right? There were thousands, 3,000, 5,000. There's thousands of people that can come to know Christ at one time. But in this particular case, there's, there's no mention of God's, co of God's covenant being the covenant God. There's no mention of putting away of idols. I don't know. Jonah changes directions, doesn't he? But we know in verse 4, when we look over at chapter 4, verse 1, we know that his heart has not turned, right? He changed directions, but he didn't change his posture. So is this just a change of action, just a change of direction, just sort of a change of ethics, change in morality, right? Because that doesn't always indicate a change of the heart. That doesn't always indicate the new birth. We do know that a hundred years later in the book of Nahum, God destroys Nineveh. They're wiped completely out. 
The Medes and the Babylonians come and destroy them. Kim Keller seems to think this is just sort of a social reform, ethical reform. But the point is, is even ethical reforms start with God's word. I'd be more confident in telling you about the sailors' conversion than I would the conversion of the whole city of Nineveh, right? In chapter 1, verses 16, listen what it says about those sailors. It says, Then they feared the Lord, Yahweh. They feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to Yahweh. Not Elohim, not God generic, but Yahweh. Offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. But again, the point is, church, is that these great movements, awakenings, revivals, people coming to Christ by the thousands, only happens when Christ is exalted. His word goes forth through his church. It's also a call to us, right? Again, Jonah has changed directions, but he has not changed his disposition. Right? We are God's people. We are God's covenant people. Right? We have the covenant sign of baptism. Just like Israel had the covenant sign of circumcision. But just because we have the outward sign does not mean there's been inward life. Just because Israel had been circumcised in their flesh did not mean that they had all been circumcised of heart. Just because we come to the Lord's table briefly every service doesn't mean that we have a place at God's table. So it's a reminder for us as His church to examine our hearts. It's a reminder for the pastor to examine his heart. To make sure I'm in the faith. And if you find yourself, as Fraser talked about, doubting or failing the test, look to Christ. There's nothing new to do but look to Christ. There's nothing new to do for our city but to look to Christ. He's our only hope and salvation. The king says... Verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Reminds us of that verse in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen that says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. You see, the story of Jonah is about a generous God. Bad prophet, but generous, gracious, and merciful God. Church, that's the God that we say that we follow. That's the God that we say that we serve. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the scriptures tell us that we should extend that love to our brothers and sisters first inside the church and then also extend that 
to those outside the church. God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. Jonah's a mirror for us to look in, church. And as you look into that mirror, and maybe you see that, man, I'm just not a very good bride. There's no condemnation. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, who will finish the work he started in you, who will make you the bride that he has called and created you to be. Let's pray together.